So one of our favorite footwear brands, Olakai, just got into the golf market. And this is very, very good news. We already knew and loved Olakai from their sandals, which are almost ridiculously comfortable. They're a Hawaiian-inspired brand. Olakai is actually two Hawaiian words, olu meaning comfort and kai meaning ocean. And they recently launched golf shoes. Like I said, we are over the moon about this because for golfers, they're bringing the same quality and comfort that we know from their sandals to the course in the form of spikeless golf shoes. They sent two of the models our way. I got the classic leather shoe, the YLI, and the more lightweight Kapalua. First thing I noticed, I love how you can collapse the heel to make any shoe a slip-on. That's their signature drop-in technology. In fact, the first few times I wore these, it wasn't to the golf course. It was just out in social settings and got a number of compliments on how they looked. I personally lean toward the Kapalua because I like the lightweight nature of it. I like the trench blue color. I thought it looked really nice. And when I took it out in the golf course, not only was it light, not only was it comfortable, not only did it look good, but for a spikeless golf shoe, the traction was unbelievable. I didn't notice any difference. In fact, I went out one of the first few times with this shoe, shot an 83, my personal best score ever. I'm not saying it was entirely the shoe, but I don't think it hurt. So these guys are great. They also make women's shoes. And the bottom line is that Olakai designed these shoes to be comfortable right out of the box and to wear long after 18 holes. So next time you tee it up, bring a little aloha along with Olakai Golf. You can find them at olukai.com. I'm going to leave y'all in one thought and I'm going to leave. I'm a big believer in faith. I have a good feeling about this. That's all I'm going to tell you. We all swore that Sunday night we will be coming by. We will come by. We will beat them in 85. We will beat them in 85. And you wouldn't bet against Patrick Reed following him in. very emotional I started to think about uh, maybe the possibility of winning here uh, today uh, a few thoughts uh, for my friend Sebi this one is for, for him five of you have already asked me tonight you know what's the winning formula and what's the difference year in year out and you know if I could put my finger on it would have changed this shit a long time ago this for the Ryder Cup oh, and it slipped by the edge it slipped by the edge, and now things change. Now things change. I live for the Ryder Cup. That's why I'm here. I will deliver a point. There is, and always has been, something about the number three that is so deeply woven into the fabric of human existence that... If you wanted to get really mystical or maybe a cult about it, you could almost call it the elemental number, the number of life. You've heard the phrase, things happen in threes. You know, that could be describing anything from hearing a strange word three times in the same day. You know, I've gone a decade without hearing that word. Why am I hearing it now? We've all seen, you know, three famous people die in the same week or the same day. That's supposed to come in threes. The number three is all over religion. You could go all the way back to the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, you know, the three gods of Hinduism to, of course, the one most familiar to the Western world, the Holy Trinity of Christianity. It's a huge number in art. The triptych paintings, the three acts of a Hollywood screenplay, the major and minor thirds in music. If you're watching an improv show or a sketch comedy show, you'll likely hear the beats of a joke 
three times. That's called the rule of three. And when it comes to storytelling, whether you go back to the Oedipus cycle or you're talking about Star Wars, so often things happen in trilogies. Now, I like to look at the origin story of the modern Ryder Cup through this same prism. There are some great, you know, individual one-off Ryder Cups out there. The War by the Shore, 1991 at Kiowa. The Draw on the Dunes with the famous concession in 1969. The American comeback at Brookline. The European comeback at Medina. But to tell the story of the Ryder Cup in the European era, to understand why things are the way they are today, you have to go back to that tried-and-true format, the trilogy. And in this case, the transformation began in 1983 at PGA National in Florida. It continued in 85 at the Belfry in England. That's Act 2. And the finale comes in 1987 at Mirfield Village in Ohio. Three contests, a trilogy. And the Ryder Cup that emerges on the other side is, to put it mildly, a very different beast. Now, if you listened to the episode last week, the Glen Eagles episode 2014, I traced a little bit of the old history of the Ryder Cup. And at the risk of repeating myself, I'm going to do it again, maybe a little bit faster this time. The main thing you have to know is that from 1927, when this event starts, to 1981, the story of the Ryder Cup is a story of thorough American dominance over the British and later the Europeans. I said it last time, there's nothing really dramatic or surprising about this. America had the overwhelming population and talent advantage to the extent that you know, no amount of tactics or team spirit or anything else could overcome it. They won over and over and over. It was boring, it was predictable, and it's kind of a miracle the event even survived. And I think it's important to mention, even if we do it quickly here, that the fact that Great Britain endures the greatest trauma in the history of its empire in World War II, that's not irrelevant. For them, it's not just about losing soldiers, which they did. It's also about losing civilians during the bombings, losing infrastructure, having to rebuild your country both materially and psychologically. That's going to take a toll on every single walk of life for a very long time. And even something as seemingly you know, tangential or unrelated as the Ryder Cup, yes, it's going to be affected. So, as this American Golden Age is happening, people know there's a problem, and steps are taken throughout the years to try to make the Ryder Cup more competitive. The format changes a few times. Irish players are introduced to the British team. Then eventually the whole continent of Europe comes on board in 1979. But four years into the European era, the situation is still utterly dismal. 1979 at the Greenbrier, year one, it's America winning at home 17 to 11. In 1981, Europe gets its first chance as a continent on home soil. America embarrasses them, wins by nine points. And it's important to understand that really nobody is happy about this. Obviously, the Europeans aren't happy, right? They're losing, they're miserable, there's infighting and bad feelings, and nobody likes the captains, and on and on and on. But the Americans aren't really happy either. In fact, it's Jack Nicklaus in 1977, after that Ryder Cup, who suggests to Lord Darby, this guy who is the president of the British PGA at the time, a cousin to Queen Elizabeth, Nicholas says, you know, hey, you better do something because this isn't competitive, and it never has been. And the funny thing about that is... Part of the reason he brought it up is because Tom Weiskopf, of all people, actually qualified for the 1977 Ryder Cup and decided to skip it to go hunting. Now imagine that happening now. You really can't, right? Weiskopf later admitted he was wrong to do it, but his quote at the time was, you know, that he didn't know he'd have a chance to do it again. Hunting, that is, not the Ryder Cup. Here's some more context. 
In the Ryder Cup we're about to talk about, 1983, there was almost no TV coverage on Saturday because ABC, who had the rights, they aired college football. They'd show a scoreboard at halftime, and that was it. And on Sunday, they only showed two hours. But guess what? That was the first time the Ryder Cup had ever been on American TV. And how about this? The players that were on the course that day estimated that for the dramatic finish in Sunday singles, there were about, oh, a thousand spectators on the entire course. For a tournament that now gets about 50,000 people per day, 250,000 for the entire week, and that's only because they have to turn people away. It would be more if they could. And 83 is part of what starts to get us from there. Point A, you know, a thousand spectators on Sunday, nobody watching, it's not on TV really. To point B, where the Ryder Cup is a phenomenon. But understand at the time, this is at best a third-tier sporting event in the U.S., and that might be being generous. And it's kind of embarrassing to everyone. But it shows what the Americans, or at least some of them, think of this. And the other thing that may have inspired Nicholas in his conversation with Lord Darby is that he played a match in 77 with Mark James and Tommy Horton, and they were very slow players. And he and Tom Watson killed him, five and four. But Nicholas is thinking, why am I out here being miserable with this snail-like pace? I think it was cold outside that day, and it's not even competitive. And so he's annoyed for a few reasons. So he talks to Lord Darby, and Lord Darby agrees with him. And he says, okay, I'm going to handle it, which to his credit, he does. Jack Nicholas was born in 1940. By the time he spoke to Lord Darby in 77, in his lifetime, the American Ryder Cup record was 16 and one. And largely, the Americans think, okay, sure, we'll take the win every two years. It's no skin off our back. It's the Europeans, and the English in particular, who have to bear the brunt of this humiliation, which is not easy. Because golf was born there, remember. But they've been so long at the bottom, they don't really know or expect any different. If you want a contemporary parallel, you don't have to look very far because we have the President's Cup. I was at Melbourne in 2019 when the Americans squeaked out a narrow win over the internationals, and I can tell you that everybody, whether they were from America or anywhere else in the world, whether they were a journalist or worked for a governing body or had any vested interest in all, including, by the way, a lot of savvy, forward-thinking American fans, they all wanted the internationals to win that thing. Why? Because they love the idea of the event, like I do. 2019 gave a glimpse of what it could become, but we also know that it's not really going to be any good until it's competitive. Right, So you want the internationals to win so you can start to get there. And around 1980, that's where the Ryder Cup was, almost exactly. As a quick aside, by the way, Americans might have been growing indifferent, but the British and the Europeans still cared. Even getting slaughtered, they still cared. I asked Bernard Langer in 2021, after hearing about you know, how unpleasant the first two European Ryder Cups were, I said, why did you even play? You know, you're getting no money for it. It's not fun. You're getting killed all the time. Why did you play? And he said, quote, because it was a big deal in Europe. Even though we were losing, it was a big deal to make the team, big deal to represent your tour and your country. And for me especially, I was never an amateur and had never played any team events. And I really enjoyed playing the best Americans and getting to see them and getting to know them, end quote. And he's German. He's not even British. But the separation between the tours at the time it meant the Europeans only got to see these great Americans once in a while. And the Ryder Cup was a vehicle for that. So they cared, players and fans alike, and in a strange way, that almost puts the impetus on the Americans to make a change. So what happens? What happens when your Team Europe and you're staring down the 
barrel of 56 years of rotten history where in that time nobody has any answers, nothing good ever sticks, and now it's on you to somehow solve it. Well, lucky them, Tony Jacklin happened. Tony Jacklin is the first of what will be many great European captains, and he's by far the most important of them all. He's the reason that the rest of them existed. He is somebody that history, and quite frankly the Americans, did not expect. And remember I briefly mentioned the three Hindu gods. You've got you know Brahma the creator, Vishnu the preserver, and Shiva the destroyer. In his first three captaincies, Tony Jacklin is going to be all of those things more than once. He's the man, finally, who can end the British nightmare. He's the visionary. He's the pioneer they've been waiting for. And by the time he's done, the Ryder Cup will be unrecognizable. If you enjoy it today, if it's something, you know, the Ryder Cup that makes you excited, maybe that's true if you're listening to this podcast, well, thank Tony Jacklin. Because in five short years, he's asked to pull off the impossible feat of not just stopping history in its tracks, but actually reversing it. Nobody sees this guy coming. He is one of golf's great dark horses, and he pulls it off. It all starts in 1983, part one of our trilogy. The Europeans go to America, where they have never won before, where they've barely ever been competitive, and they come out punching. There's a funny thing about history, and I'm talking about any kind of history, and it's that some of the greatest leaders are very unlikely figures. We talked in the Glen Eagles episode about Paul McGinley, you know, maybe perhaps even arguably the best Ryder Cup captain ever, you know, one of them for sure. And he was someone who never even got serious about golf until he was 19, never won a major, and yet he's so good and talented in this one specific way that he almost inevitably falls into a leadership role. Well, Tony Jacklin was also an unlikely figure, but it wasn't because of his playing resume. In fact, not only was he a tremendous pro, but I think when you look back at the history of golf since, let's say, 1950, he is one of the most underrated players, and I emphasize the word player, in the sport. Part of that is time. You know, he did most of his damage in the 60s and 70s, and that's more than 50 years ago at this point. Of course, we have a bias toward more recent events. Part of it, too, is that he is known most prominently as a player for a moment called the concession in the 1969 Ryder Cup, which we'll get to in more detail shortly, but which was so famous that it has a way of overshadowing everything else Tony Jacklin did. And beyond the concession, he's you know famous as a four-time Ryder Cup captain, of course. So when you're dealing with a guy who you know is now in his late 70s and still has these two really big lines on his resume, the concession and then a captain, it's inevitable that something gets lost in the shuffle. And that something for Tony Jacklin is the vast majority of his playing career. Jacklin was an only child born in the town of Scunthorpe in 1944, the latter stages of World War II. That's an industrial town, Scunthorpe, in the north of England. His dad worked as a truck driver and at the steelworks factory, and his mom worked weekends at the market. And he wasn't very old himself before he was working a paper route and helping his mother load vans at the market. You know, these are not rich people. In fact, money was a constant problem in his younger days. His father took up golf at the behest of a neighbor when Tony was eight years old. Tony followed his dad's footsteps, and by age 13, 
He was good enough that he was winning the local boys championship as a completely self-taught golfer. And he's winning against much older boys. He was a good looking kid, incredibly confident, the kind of kid who would practice his own autograph because he had a feeling he'd be famous one day. And though he quit school at 15 and spent a year at the steelworks, golf was always his ticket out. And he was good enough that at age 18, he turned pro. Didn't take him long to find success either. He made the cut at the 63 Open at Royal Lithum and St. Anne's, which gave him some money to travel on. And he was a very good touring pro by 1964, just 19 years old. And when we talk about the tour then, you know, this was not the modern European tour, but basically a series of independent events, mostly organized by a golf club or a company or one of the governing bodies. But it wasn't until 1972 that the European tour was formed And even then, it wasn't integrated continent-wide because you had the British PGA, you had other governing bodies doing their own thing. So Jacqueline's playing in events, you know, like the Coombe Hills Assistance Tournament, which happened to be his first really big win. And, you know, these other kind of British PGA-type events that are popping up. But he was a flashy guy, even then, the kind of guy who Rick Riley wrote in Sports Illustrated would wear gold lame pants, you know, lavender cashmere sweaters, things like that. And even playing these, you know, small kind of piddly events, he got the sense he always thought he was destined for bigger things. So after he met his wife, Vivian, in Northern Ireland in 1965, he started to travel. And at this point in 66, 67, he's winning tournaments in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. He's playing in Asia. You know, this is along with his usual European events. And his wife is caddying for him on some of these long trips. And then Tony Jacklin makes a very big decision, which is that he is going to go play in America. That is not easy at that time. You know, there weren't many foreign players on the PGA Tour then. It's not like today. And that's what they called them then too, by the way, the foreign players. And the rules make it a little difficult to go full-time. I mean, as late as 1986, Seve Ballesteros was feuding with Dean Beeman, the PGA Tour commissioner, because Seve essentially got banned in 86 for not playing 15 events the year before. That was the rule. And the reception for these foreign guys is a little hostile too. You know, Tony Jacklin recalled one incident where an American player named Dave Hill stood a few feet away from him and said that he didn't think foreign players should be allowed to play in America. And so Jacklin has to bear the brunt of that. And when we spoke back in 2021, he told me, you know, I've never met anybody that could help where he was born. But, you know, hard as it is, Jacklin wants to be the best player in the world. He's incredibly ambitious. And he knows that to do that, he's got to beat the Americans. So... Quick little historical aside here. If you go on Wikipedia and you look up the list of men's major championship winners, you know, you start out way back in time and it's all British people. The Open Championship, of course, starting in 1860. U.S. Open joins the fun in 1895. PGA Championship in 1916. And the Brits are completely dominating all three. As you might expect, right? It's their sport. And these are the very early days. In fact, it takes 17 years before an American wins the U.S. Open. I repeat, the U.S. Open... And even when it changes, it changes slowly with guys like Walter Hagen, Francis Wiemey sneaking in a couple titles here or there. Then World War I hits, and afterward it's like somebody snapped their fingers because American golf takes off. 1922, the three majors, remember the Masters didn't come until a little bit later, are won by Hagen, Gene Sarazen, and Gene Sarazen. What do they all have in common? Well, they're all American. And Hagen wins at Royal St. George's, which makes him the first U.S.-born winner of the British Open. And from there, all of a sudden, it's U.S. dominance. By the time the Masters comes along in the 30s, three out of four majors are in America. 
And again, you go back to Wikipedia, look there, and all of a sudden, it's all American flags all over the place. And by the late 60s, the British have gone almost two decades without winning the Open Championship, their own tournament. They're not even sniffing a U.S. Open or PGA Championship or Masters. Forget that. I mean, the Masters starts in 1934, and it is going to be until 1988 when the British finally win one. That's Sandy Lyle. Nick Faldo became the first Englishman a year later. But that's how bad things got. And when it's not the Americans winning, it's Bobby Locke or Gary Player from South Africa, Peter Thompson and a few other guys from Australia. But the English, the Scottish, the ones who gave this game to the world are nowhere to be found. So Tony Jacklin's ambitions as a player are personal. But because of the nature of the sport at the time in the 60s, they are also by default almost patriotic or at least national, right? And see if this sounds familiar, because in order to fulfill that ambition, he's got to do it against a historical juggernaut. Yes, the Americans. He's got to beat Jack Nicklaus. He's got to beat Arnold Palmer. He's got to beat Lee Trevino. You don't have to stretch very far to see the parallels between what he had to do as a player and what he would later have to do as a Ryder Cup captain. Jacqueline gets his PGA Tour card in 67, and there's a good interview in Golf.com about that time in his life where he says something which I found a little bit remarkable. Digest this one. He says, quote, Being in America, my game really accelerated. I became close to Yancey and Tom Weisskopf. Tom's mentor was Tommy Bolt. I had played with all the best players we had in Britain, but they didn't know as much about the golf swing, particularly the importance of the lower body, the legs. We were compromised by the weather and the Lynx courses. It wasn't about making swings. It was about playing shots, you know? But in America, I had the opportunity to work on technique. End quote. So here's Jacqueline not only trying to plant a flag where no British golfer has in years, but he learns that his own country doesn't even really know the best way to swing a club. I mean, to me, that is pretty stunning. Even for that period in time, that is stunning. But Jacqueline improves, and he does something amazing in 1968, which is that he wins the Jacksonville Open Invitational. Now, you might hear that and go, okay, give me a break. I can tell just by the name. It's just a normal PGA Tour event. Yes, true, but when was the last time a European won a quote-unquote normal PGA Tour event? The answer is the 1920s, and it wasn't even really the PGA Tour then. He is essentially the first, and he does it paired in the final round with Arnold Palmer. I'm going to quote him now from that same golf.com piece. He said, quote, And winning in Jacksonville in March 68 was a big deal because I played the last day with Arnold. Playing in front of Arnie's army was like playing with Jesus Christ. I mean, they didn't give a damn about what you were doing. And despite that, I got it done. And that was a great confidence booster, knowing that I could win in that type of arena against all odds. I had to be tough playing over here because there were a bunch of guys who resented any foreign player in those days. 50 years is a long time ago. The attitudes were a bit different then. It was a battle to survive. When I stepped on the golf course, the softest thing about me was my teeth. End quote. So he's a pioneer already at age 24. And he becomes a pioneer again in a much bigger way when he becomes the first British player to win the Open Championship in almost 20 years in 1969. And then he becomes the ultimate pioneer a year later in 1970 when he wins the U.S. Open. He's the first British man to do that in 43 years and the first Englishman to win it since 1924. And by the way, a little poetic justice, the man who came in second at that U.S. Open, Dave Hill. He's the one who, according to Jacqueline, let him know that he didn't think foreigners should be allowed to play 
in America. You cannot understate what this does for the English game, Jacqueline winning those two majors. It's basically like a defibrillator paddle on the still heart of the British sport. It revives them. And when you see a generation of British golfers having way more success internationally 10, 15, 20 years down the road, a massive part of that is down to Jacqueline, who did all of this on his own. Even all the way forward in 2013, when another Englishman, Justin Rose, won the U.S. Open, he thanks Jacqueline. That's how much this win resonates. And again, I mention all this because when he's asked to do a very similar thing in 1983, I'll use the phrase one more time to stop history in its tracks. Well, it's not exactly the same thing because it's a team instead of one man. It's arguably harder. But then again, it's not that different. And he knows what to do because in a way, he's done it before. So before we get there, going back to his playing days, Jacqueline is throughout this whole time playing in Ryder Cups. And a lot of times when we look back on a career, you know, you can find pairs of people who always seem to find each other in the historical record. You know, they're like, you know, strands of a double helix DNA molecule, you know, one way or another, they're always coming back together. And Tony Jacqueline and Jack Nicholas are two of these people. And the most famous moment they're going to have as players comes in 1969 at Royal Birkdale. Now, you already know this is in the midst of a long American winning streak in the Ryder Cup. But here you have the rare case, in fact, the very rare case of a close, exciting match. There is no doubt that this is the best Ryder Cup ever played before 1983. Now, that's a low bar, but it is a very, very good Ryder Cup, and you didn't have many of those at the time. We're going to deal with it pretty quickly here. It was a tense Ryder Cup. There was no love lost at all between the two teams. Jacqueline told me that their captain, Eric Brown, the guy who was nicknamed the Fiery Scott, if that tells you anything, he told the British team that if the Americans lost a ball, don't help them look for it. And Jacqueline laughed at that, and he thought to himself, well, there's no way I'm not going to help them look for the ball. But that attitude carried down to some of the players. And the Americans had guys like Dave Hill, another player named Dan Sykes, who Jacqueline told me was, quote, a miserable bastard. <laughs> Those were his words. And a few others who, you know, kind of had this edge to them, almost mean-spirited. There was almost a fistfight on Saturday. It's not an exaggeration. So this was a blood feud. And it seems to be the combination of maybe some, you know, provincial attitudes on some of the Americans part. We mentioned Dave Hill's whole thing and probably a good bit of defensiveness and insecurity on the part of the British because they get humiliated so often. Which makes all of this a very unlikely venue for one of the really great acts of sportsmanship ever, my opinion. But that's what transpires. Now, Jacqueline's a star at this Ryder Cup. He's the reigning Open champion, and he plays like it. He waxes Dave Hill on Thursday, beats Nicholas and Sykes in four ball on Friday, and in the morning session on Saturday, beats Nicholas four and three in singles. You hear this, and you're probably thinking, well, this kind of sounds weird, this format. Yes, you're right. They played Thursday through Saturday then, and they had two single sessions on Saturday. And so that brings us to the afternoon. It is 13-11 to the UK. There are eight matches left. And of course, Jacqueline and Nicholas get drawn again in the very last match. And the Americans, facing their first loss in 12 years, even though they're on enemy soil, they make a huge push. Dave Hill wins. Miller Barber wins. Dan Sykes wins. Gene Littler wins. By the time we get to the last match, it is tied. Winner take all which is bad news for Jacqueline because he is one down on 17. Then he does something spectacular that is very much lost to history. He makes a 50-foot eagle putt on 17, and he needed it. 
You know, Jack Nicholas was going to be in for birdie. This was an absolute miracle. And it means that they were all square heading into the final hole with the Ryder Cup itself tied. This is massive. And Nicholas does a funny thing. After their tee shots in 18, Jacqueline is off like a flash, marching down the fairway. You know, that whole thing, you know, walk ahead of your opponent. But Nicholas won't let him get away. He yells for him to stop. He comes over to him, puts his arm on his shoulder and says, are you nervous? And Jacqueline says, I'm bloody petrified. And Nicholas responds, me too. So they both get on the green with their approach. They're both about 30 feet away. Jacqueline goes first. He hits his to two feet and thinks, you know, if Nicholas gets close, they'll go good, good. Get out of there. But remember, in a tie, the team that won the last time retains the cup. So it's not really a tie, is it? This means that Jacqueline has more of a motivation to try to beat him on this hole, where for Nicholas, having the hole basically wins the U.S. the Ryder Cup. They retain it. So when Nicholas hits it four and a half feet past, Jacqueline has to make him putt. He has to. Nicholas, because he is Jack Nicholas, he makes it. And then with the eyes of the golf world on him, he picks up Jacqueline's marker, concedes the putt, and says something like, I don't think you would have missed it, but I never would have given you the opportunity in these circumstances. And when you look back on it now, it's easy to look at it from a modern angle, through that modern lens, and to see this, oh yeah, why not? Why wouldn't he do that? Easy PR win, right? Everybody praises it. You know, these guys have you know been friends ever since. They collaborated on a golf course together called The Concession, and it's generally hailed again today as one of the great acts of sportsmanship. But it is very, very important to consider it within its own time. And as you might guess from hearing about what some of the Americans were like at that event and some of the British, this was not well received. In fact, Nicholas's captain, Sam Sneed, was furious. Here's what Sneed said, quote, When it happened, all the boys thought it was ridiculous to give him that putt. We went over there to win, not to be good old boys, end quote. Billy Casper said, we worked so hard to get where we were, and then to have that be the finalization of the Ryder Cup, it was quite a sensation for everyone concerned there. Tommy Aaron was quoted as saying, you know, quote, he picked up Jacqueline's coin. We were all shocked. We couldn't believe that he had done this. They didn't get it. Some of them would over time, like Billy Casper, but at the time, they were pissed. They wanted to win, and you notice the quotes above. They don't, they don't quote Dave Hill. Imagine what he thought. You know, I even asked some of the current players in 2021. In fact, we were playing at the concession golf course. There was a WGC that year. It was supposed to be the Mexican event, but they had had to move it for COVID. And I asked some of them, you know, what would you have done? You know, would you have conceded that putt? Would you have done what Nicholas did? And a lot of them said they wouldn't do it, including Justin Thomas, who is arguably America's greatest, you know, team golfer of this current generation. So for Nicholas in that atmosphere to even think of saving Jacqueline from potential humiliation, if he had missed the putt to think of it in that moment, amidst these incredible nerves and all the fighting and bad blood that had been going on that weekend. And by the way, this was Nicholas's first Ryder cup, right? So he's a rookie surrounded by older players, which is just another reason that you think maybe he just would kind of march in lockstep rather than do something controversial like that for him to even think of doing it shows some incredible empathy. I think it shows incredible courage. It's very easy to overhype things in sports at times, but this to me, if anything, when you, when you look at the context is underrated, whatever you think about Nicholas. Now the concession, I believe really is one of the great gestures. It's called having a sense of the moment and a sense of history. So that is the start of Tony Jacqueline and Jack Nicholas. 
69 is the second of seven Ryder Cups Jacqueline will play between 67 and 79. And it is by far the closest. He and his fellow UK players and a handful of Irish players get absolutely demolished in the rest of them. And he finishes his playing career 0-6-1 in the Ryder Cup. And we talked before about his ambition to be the best player in the world. And in 1970, it looks like maybe he's well on his way. But things turn, and they turn quickly, and the seminal moment comes in 1972. Jacqueline is still just 28 years old then, and he comes into the 17th hole at the Open Championship tied with Lee Trevino. He gets on the green in three, on the par five, has a 15-foot birdie putt, and Trevino's over the green in four, which means it looks very much like you know, Jacqueline is going to take a lead into the 72nd hole. Trevino even did something strange where he congratulated Jacqueline in the fairway, basically saying, nice job, you won. He barely took any time over his fifth shot, but his chip with a nine iron went in the hole. Somehow, he made par. And Jacqueline made a big mistake then. He overreacted. You know, he was angry. This was not the first time Trevino had chipped in. He was angry, and he said, okay, I'm going to show this guy. I'm going to bury this birdie putt. Instead, he runs it three feet past, and he missed the comebacker. Incredibly, from this great position, he was one down heading to 18. Not only that, but he was starting to get upset because, again, Trevino kept chipping in that week. This wasn't the first time. It felt unfair. It's in his head now. He bogeys 18, and that's it. Somehow Trevino won that Open Championship. And in a way that Jacqueline later admits which is you know, rare for a player to admit this kind of thing. But Jacqueline says that moment broke him. Here's what he told James Corrigan of The Telegraph years later. Quote, I was done after that, as far as majors were concerned, and majors were the only thing that mattered to me. It knocked the stuffing out of me. That night at the Gray Walls Hotel, where we were all staying, Nicholas and Palmer both came up to me and said, don't let it affect you. Don't let it change your outlook. But it wasn't that straightforward. Golf isn't that straightforward. Something, I don't know what, died inside me that day. End quote. Here's what he told Rick Riley. Quote, I felt bloody sick. Nothing's fair. Life and golf are for the takers. You've got to take it, grab it, and keep it. Never give anything away. End quote. He never contended in a major championship again. Not seriously. He won a handful of European events here and there, but that was it for him and the really big ones. It was like he couldn't take it anymore, and he was only 28 years old. I mentioned that Tony Jacklin was an unlikely captain, but I still haven't explained why. So far, he sounds pretty likely, right? Won majors, played in a lot of Ryder Cups. But the years went on, Jacklin moved back to Europe, you know, went about his life as a good but not great professional golfer, past his prime at 28. In 1979, the Ryder Cup expanded from just the UK and Ireland to the entire continent of Europe, again, partly because of Jack Nicklaus and that conversation he had with Lord Darby. And there were only two continental players, though, who made that first trip to the Greenbrier in West Virginia, and that was Seve Ballesteros and Antonio Garrido from Spain. As we said, the Europeans got slaughtered again. Larry Nelson personally laid ways to Seve, you know, it's one of the interesting lost bits of Ryder Cup history that Nelson went 5-for-5 five five that weekend. He's the only guy to do so in the modern format until Molinari did it and then Dustin Johnson. But four of the five times, Seve's name got drawn right alongside him. 
But maybe the biggest story of the event was the behavior of two Englishmen named Mark James and Ken Brown. There's a book on Ryder Cup history by two writers named Peter Pugh and Henry Lord, both of them very obviously British. And here's how they describe it. Quote, This was the era of punk rock and rebellious youth, and they were going to show that they were with it. An early sign of trouble ahead was flagged up by the two appearing at Heathrow wearing casual clothes instead of the official uniform of suit and tie as worn by the rest of the team. Once in the USA, the two missed a tea meeting because they had gone shopping, and at the opening ceremony, both behaved as though the whole thing was a waste of time. End quote. Kind of funny to think of, you know, kind of funny to think of, you know, Mark James and Ken Brown as punk rockers. <laughs> we'll go with it. Why not? Why not? But Tony Jacklin did tell me that they behaved abominably like felons, and they were generally obnoxious, even to the point of hiding their faces when a photographer came around. In Robin McMillan's excellent oral history of the Ryder Cup against them, John Jacobs, the captain, lays out their sins. You know, he says they showed up looking like tramps on the airplane. They talked during the national anthem at the opening ceremony. You know, James, Mark James himself, basically they had to scream at him to even attend because he wanted to stay in his room and eat cheeseburgers. And then he had an injury that everyone thinks maybe he faked and he didn't play after his first match. And when those two did play, they played terribly. And when James got injured and Brown had to play with the Irishman Des Smith, he wouldn't even talk to him to the point that Hale Irwin, who waxed him, said he played like he didn't care. When those two got back to Europe, they were fined and banned from international play for a year. Everyone, and I mean everyone, was pissed off at them on the European side. So imagine how Tony Jacklin felt two years later in 1981 when he was a spot behind Mark James on the money list right around 12th and the captain John Jacobs who was also the captain in 1979 and had watched Mark James's buffoon act then, he took Mark James with a captain's pick over Tony Jacklin. That was it for Jacklin. Jacobs invited him to be an assistant. He said, hell no. Or as he's quoted in against them, he tells them to, quote, stick it in their ear. I listened to what he said. Jacklin says, quote, by then I was totally disenchanted and particularly with the attitude of those in charge, not just of the Ryder Cup, but golf in Europe generally. For a dozen years or so, I have been playing mostly in the States and was constantly aware of how much higher standards were over there. End quote. He was talking about players, yes, but also the facilities, the quality of the courses, locker rooms, food, practice facilities, everything. And he was sick of the British PGA being completely cheap about the Ryder Cup. He goes on, quote, I particularly remember one year, 1975, at Arnold Palmer's home club, Laurel Valley. We were all given stylos plastic shoes. And one of my souls came completely off during my singles match against Ray Floyd. Meanwhile, there they were, he's talking about the Americans, traveling by Concord, looking like a million dollars, wives to match, and the best of everything laid on. In those days, we really were second-class citizens and like lambs to the slaughter. End quote. It's funny to read that today because we associate Ryder Cup dysfunction with the Americans at least until the last couple of years, but at the time, clearly, the dysfunction belonged with the UK and then to Europe. Jacqueline used a great word to describe what happened to his teams in the Ryder Cup, and that word was frappéed, as in they were frappéed by the Americans. And he also said something really interesting to me about their mentality going in and how they would handle the kind of you know humiliation that came their way every two years. They may have been lambs to the slaughter, but that's not how they saw themselves because... You know, they have their pride. So what did they do? Well, to quote Jacqueline again, quote, In those days, it was quite a lot of bravado, if you like. Not confidence, 
you wouldn't be confident. It was more like, oh, we can do it. But there was nothing that really happened to make you believe that could be. It was superficial bravado, like, we can beat these buggers. And you talk about it. But when you've got the real confidence required, it comes from inside. It's not something you brag about. It's something you do. End quote. I asked if there was an inferiority complex, and he said, absolutely, there's an inferiority complex. We stood on the first tee, and we were two down before we ever hit a bloody ball. So the bravado was a defense mechanism and a symptom of all the losing. And maybe you could argue that even the way Ken Brown and Mark James behaved was a symptom, too. But John Jacobs, the captain, picked James, completely alienated Jacqueline by doing that. You know, Jacqueline had actually felt sorry for him after 79, but now he was enraged. And losing Jacqueline from a playing perspective at that point was maybe not a death blow. You know, he was past his prime. But then they went and managed to do something worse, which is that they lost Seve Ballesteros. Now, Seve had gone from a very big star in 79, when he won the Open Championship, to an outright superstar by 1981, because he'd won the Masters in 1980. Which you'll remember, at that point, no British player had ever done. In fact, he was the first European to do it. Couple that with his looks, his passion, and this is an incredibly exciting person to have in the sport. Guy was electrifying. And it probably comes as no surprise that as he becomes a bigger draw, he wants appearance fees. Not just from the Ryder Cup, but at European stops too. And in some places he gets them. But then Europe says they don't want to do it anymore. They want a complete stop to appearance fees, but here's what happens. They keep paying Americans, which pisses Seve off even more. And the Ryder Cup especially says no to any kind of you know money, any kind of appearance fees. And they could have made him a captain's pick, but when a three-man committee made up of Jacobs, Bernard Langer, and Neil Coles met, only Jacobs voted to include Seve, so he was out. And the Americans came in with a great team to Walton Heath. 1981, and they massacred the Europeans, 18 and a half to nine and a half. Then 1981 ends, 1982 comes around, and nothing happens. The next Ryder Cup is going to be at PGA National in 83, but 1983 comes, and nobody hears anything. Well, that's because there was a fight going on behind closed doors, and the fight was within the British PGA, and it involved a spirited disagreement between the old guard and the new guard about what kind of person should be Ryder Cup captain. You won't be surprised that the old guard fought for this idea of a more ceremonial captain, you know, a lifetime achievement award kind of thing, basically an old guard captain, while the new guard, led most prominently by Bernard Langer and Bernard Gallagher, thought the captain should be somebody at, you know, the tail end of their playing career maybe, but much closer to the generation of the stars that they'd be managing. Someone who would be in touch And all this was happening in these committee meetings that included British PEGA officials and players, and they kept ending with no resolution. So the argument goes on, 1982 comes to an end, the Ryder Cup now is just months away, the young guys are not backing down, and finally, they win. So the day comes in April of 1983, that's what Jacqueline says, some others put it as late as May, when he's out in the range at Moortown Golf Club in Leeds, And he's approached by Ken Schofield, executive director of the new European tour, and Colin Snape, who's the secretary of the British PGA. And they asked him to be the Ryder Cup captain. And by the way, you have to emphasize again, this is five months before the event. Think about that today. 
You know, when captains are chosen a year and a half at least beforehand. But the Europeans had dragged their feet so much that they barely had time to do anything. Now, Jacqueline told me all of this in an interview down in Florida at his golf course, and later I read about it again in an article that Bob Herrig, when he was at ESPN, had written in 2016. And in both cases, Jacqueline used the same expression to me and to Herrig to describe his reaction to this approach. He said, quote, you could have knocked me down with a feather, end quote. To say that this offer comes as a shock to him is an understatement. We already know Jacqueline was done with the Ryder Cup after the events of 81. He didn't like them. He assumed they didn't like him that much. He knew they considered him a, you know, whinger. We would say whiner in America. So this invitation didn't just come out of the blue. It was the absolute last thing he would ever have expected. And at first, he didn't know what to do. One thought he had originally was to tell them, you know, get lost. On some level, I'm sure that would have been satisfying, a little bit of revenge for everything that had happened to him. But on another level, he couldn't deny that the idea excited him. But if, and only if, he could do it on his terms. So that day at Moortown, he told them he'd think about it. He goes home, and he turns it over in his head. And he asks the question, you know, what does it mean to me, Tony Jacklin, to do this thing on my terms? You know, the Glen Eagles podcast, we talked about Paul McGinley, and a large part of what made him great was his tactical mind, the strategies that went into play to form good pairings, to kind of befuddle the Americans, you know, all this intricate planning. Well, it's different for Jacqueline. And it's different because McGinley, by 2014, already had a ton of logistical support in place. Money wasn't an issue. You know, facilities were not an issue, nothing like that. So he had the freedom and the time to go really deep into tactics. Jacqueline's not going to get that deep, not this time, because he's tasked not with continuing a successful template, but of inventing one. Again, he is face-to-face with the blunt side of history, and he's got to push back, and he's got to do it fast. And what he wants to do, if you reduce it to its simplest version, is he wants to make this about the players. He wants to make it comfortable for them, pleasant for them, easy for them. He wants them to be treated by the same standards that the Americans are treated. You know, you remember the quote above about how we felt like, you know, they were second-class citizens, lambs to the slaughter, His shoes were falling apart. All that stuff needs to change. And it needs to change in a big way or they're never going to be successful. So he goes to his friend's house for the night and he thinks about it and he decides that he's going to go in and ask for a few things. First, the team's got to travel on the Concorde, the supersonic jet. Second, they have to have good clothes. You know, in a funny way, it's hard to overestimate how much the shoe incident from the 75 Ryder Cup where the soles fell out, how much that stuck in his mind to the point that the friend he stayed with remembers him talking about it over and over that night, these shoes. Next, he wanted them to be able to take their caddies free of charge, which amazingly had not been the case until then in American Ryder Cups. He also wanted a team room, and that's a big one. You know, he has a lot of memories of captains pulling them into these dank, sweaty locker rooms, giving them the pairings, maybe giving a short speech, and they're all off on their own. They don't have a place to, you know, be together. And he knows that's no way to build team chemistry or team spirit. And he wants food there and drinks, so nobody has to go anywhere else. And finally, on a strategic note, he wants three captain's picks. So he goes to meet Snape and Schofield again, these guys who offered him the job. And he comes in with this attitude of, here are my demands. If you don't like it, fine, I walk. And it almost sounds to hear him talk about it like he knew how this was going to go, right? They were never going to agree. It was going to be too much. He wouldn't compromise. They wouldn't compromise. 
It would all be over before it started, basically. That's how this was destined to end. And then something funny happened as he started reeling off these demands. They said yes to everything. And that took the wind out of his sails because he wasn't expecting it. It's funny, he left the meeting saying, you know, I wish I'd asked for four captain's picks. They were saying yes to everything. Why didn't I go for more? And at the end, you know, the fire in him, the kind of anti-Europe, anti-British PGA thing, it's completely extinguished. He's got no more demands and there's nothing to do but to say yes right back to them. They said yes to everything, so he says yes. He accepts the job. And they were as good as their word, even on the hard things, the things that cost a lot of money, which was something they weren't exactly swimming in, especially compared to the Americans. Snape, the uh, British PGA secretary, he even manages to get 50 of these wealthy superfans to fund the Concorde flight for them in exchange for flying with the team, getting a few pictures, that kind of thing. They got clothes from a company called Austin Reed, you know, high quality. And it's funny now because Austin Reed didn't do it for free, but they cut them a deal. Right Now, now you wouldn't have to cut a deal. You're going to get those clothes for the exposure. But there's not going to be any more shoe mishaps. That's big for Jacqueline. He'd get his captain's picks, but this time it was too late to implement a whole new system. So he doesn't get any captain's picks this time, but he gets them for 1985. And as far as the team room, Jacqueline even went to Florida to meet Jack Nicholas, the American captain in 83, and to scout out the facilities to make sure they'd have everything they needed. And on that trip, he found his team room. So things were changing. And if there's something remarkable here, it's how fast it changes. It almost seems like it's overnight. And for a culture and a sport that puts a really high value on tradition, looking back, it almost looks radical. And maybe radical is too radical a word. But you have to remember that this is an organization, the British PGA and the fledgling European Tour, that as it pertains to the Ryder Cup, has been making bad decisions for years now. Bad captains, bad leadership, no sense of the bigger picture of what it's going to take on an infrastructure level to change things. No real plan on how to put themselves in a position to beat the Americans. And then in 1983, it's like, boom, snap your fingers. Now there's total commitment. The dysfunction seems to disappear overnight and they're making all the right decisions. And when the right decisions are tough, they don't say no. They say, okay, we recognize this is the right decision. How do we think outside the box to get it done? And so it leads to this question, why, right? Why is this happening? Well, first off, you have to give credit to Jack Nicholas again, because he has the stature to approach this guy, Lord Darby. And when he says this has to change, it's not just a suggestion, is it? There's an implied threat in there. As in, if you choose not to change it, we're all going to be like Tom Weisskopf and find an excuse not to be there. Yes, the Europeans choose Tony Jacklin. He becomes the engine of this train. But let's not forget that somebody had to say yes to him, to say yes to the players clamoring for him. So it has to come from somewhere higher and by 1983, guys like Lord Darby and Colin Snape are desperate because they make some revenue from the Ryder Cup. And if that goes away, they're in you know pretty serious financial trouble. They've transitioned into the European era, pushed by Nicholas, but now they need to do more just to save the institution itself. And suddenly, doing something radical like giving this disgruntled 38-year-old Jacqueline the captaincy and almost total power, well, it doesn't seem so radical anymore. Seems like maybe it's your best shot even if they don't particularly like the guy. And this is a funny thing about the story of 1983, because when you're me and you envision making a, you know, Ryder Cup podcast like this one, you think, okay, you'll talk about the on-course drama, the shots and the putts that decide the outcome. And here we are, you know, however many minutes, 50 minutes or whatever into this podcast, and we haven't said a thing about any of that. Why? 
Well, because I really don't want to rush past this turning point in golf history. And this turning point in golf history is about, and you're going to laugh at this, and you can, but it's largely about a series of meetings, which sounds bureaucratic and boring, but these meetings are absolutely momentous. They determine the future of the Ryder Cup. It is not the most sexy thing to talk about, but they're more important in their way than anything that ever happened on the course. And what meetings have we talked about? Well, Nicholas's meeting with Lord Darby in 77, saying, you know, things have got to change. We talked about the three-person meeting where they banned Seve Ballesteros. The representatives from the players in the British PGA ensured that 81 would be a complete disaster. We talked about the player committee meetings with Langer and, you know, Bernard Gallagher pushing for a younger captain. The meeting at the Moortown driving range where Snape and Schofield offer the job to Jacqueline. And the meeting afterward when he makes his demands and accepts the job. We said it earlier, you know, if the Ryder Cup is today meaningful to you in some way, if you value the competitiveness and the drama of it, know that it exists in its current form because of these meetings between 77 and 83, which absolutely transformed the thing, which really almost shove it into the modern era. And the modern era is so much better in so many ways than what came before. And there's one more meeting we have to talk about. Right as Jacqueline accepts the job, this figure, Lord Darby, who's the president of the British PGA, he's hanging around, wondering how it went. You know, he's anxious, but also he's a cousin of Queen Elizabeth II. He's not going to get his hands dirty by asking Jacqueline directly, sends his, you know, his underlings for that. And already they have a complicated relationship because later they're going to fight over how Ryder Cup funds are allocated and Jacqueline's going to piss him off later, you know, majorly by arguing that the players should get more and eventually winning that argument. And to this day, Jacqueline suspects that maybe it was Lord Darby who stood in the way of him getting a knighthood. He had his OBE in 1970 and a CBE in 1990, but, you know, never a knighthood. And in conversations with me, he called, you know, Lord Darby a, quote, pompous geezer. So you can see they weren't great friends. But a lot of that drama happened afterward. And Darby was quite glad in 83 that Jacqueline had accepted the job. And they spoke after that meeting and Jacqueline said to him, what about Seve? And Darby said, well, you've accepted the job. He's your problem now. Which brings us to the Prince of Wales Hotel in Southport, England, less than one week later. One of his most important jobs, Jacqueline knew, was to get Seve on board after the debacle of 81. That was where the Open was going to be played that summer in Southport. Seve happened to be playing an event there that week. And here's how Jacqueline described that breakfast to me. He said, quote, he vented. And I said, well, you know, I agree with every bloody thing he said. They're all a pain in the ass, but I'm in charge. We do what we want, and I can't do it without you. I've accepted the job, but without you, we're not going to be competitive. And the eggs are getting cold. And in the end, he said, okay, I help you. And that was basically history after that. End quote. And there are some other good quotes from other sources about that meeting. In the book by Pew and Lord, they talk about how Jacqueline tells him that, you know, succeeding in the Ryder Cup will help his image in the UK. In Harry's story, Jacqueline says, quote, he was a very proud guy and he was angry, felt he had been slighted. I said, we're not going to be in the back of the bus anymore. They promised me the best of everything. End and there's a postscript in a Reuters story that I particularly like right after Seve agrees where Jacqueline says, and my God, once he committed, he was unbelievable. And that will be the last of these critical meetings. The culmination of all of them, the end result, is that you've got Tony Jacklin as captain with about as much freedom as anyone has ever had in his role. And on the player side, you've got the guy sitting across from him at that breakfast table in the Prince of Wales Hotel. He's angry and uncertain that day. 
but he's going to become the greatest Ryder Cupper of them all, Seve Ballesteros. And with those pieces in place, those two pieces, before they set foot in Florida, before anyone on either side even knew it, in that moment, the 50-year reign of the Americans in the Ryder Cup had just come to an end. have not talked much about the Americans yet. I think if I were writing this story, if it was fiction, it would almost be better for the narrative if, you know, they were totally cocky, totally confident, and were stunned at what eventually happened to them in 83. You know, kick the Europeans' butts in 79 and 81, full faith that they're going to do it again. It would be more poetic that way, maybe. But it was not the case. In fact, to their credit, the Americans seemed to understand almost exactly what was going to happen. Here's a quote from Ben Crenshaw that sums up their perspective nicely. Quote, We knew, even if the rest of America didn't, that we were going to have to play our absolute best golf if we were going to keep the cup. End quote. Nicholas, the American captain, felt the exact same way. And Curtis Strange, who was a rookie that year, later said that, you know, sure, while it was a big surprise exactly how good this core of Europeans became, They all knew 1983 was not going to be like 1981 or 1979. The American team was very good. Maybe not as great as it had been two years earlier, but that's a really high bar. And you still got Tom Watson, probably the best player in the world, who's won three majors in the last two years at that point. You got Raymond Floyd, the 82 PGA Championship winner, an absolute killer, and Lanny Watkins. You got Ben Crenshaw, Tom Kite. Kite was 6-1-1 in his Ryder Cup career at that point. And that's to name the best of them. But there's something interesting, too, where because of a strange selection criteria, they don't get Hal Sutton, who just won the PGA Championship because he had only been on tour for three years. That sounds kind of dumb, right? And another guy who isn't there is Larry Nelson, who you may remember had had incredible success at the Ryder Cup and actually won the U.S. Open that year in 83, but somehow did not make the top 11 of the points list. At that time, there were no captain's picks for the Americans, So all of these things that happen, you know, Sutton not making the team, Nelson, they can't do anything about it. There's no way around it. But based on what we know about Nelson, what we later learned about Sutton, they're obviously missing two really key members of that team. So who do they have instead? Jay Haas, Craig Stadler, Calvin Pete, Bob Gilder. You know, you know these names, but they're not the sort of headliners, right? Not the guys you're necessarily dying to see on the team when you're the American captain, Jack Nicklaus, and you need a point. Worse, they're all rookies. So this is a top-heavy team. And once you're past that top line, there are weaknesses. Same is true on the European side, though. Remember, Jacqueline wins his argument about captain's picks, but it's too late to implement them in 83, so they're just using their own order of merit. And it's not until 85 that he's going to get his three picks. But even without those picks, you are starting to see the European wave come on. You've got Seve, you've got Langer, Ken Azaris from Spain, who becomes a great rider cupper. And among the UK guys, you've got Sam Torrance and a couple other guys who are going to go on to win majors and Sandy Lyle and a rookie named Ian Woosnam. Plus, you have Bernard Gallagher, a veteran who has a winning record, which, you know, that's not an easy feat at the time. A whole generation of Europeans are going to come that have, they all have got winning records, but back then to have one in 83, you really had to do something right. And you have Nick Faldo. He's still just 26, but he's already 7-3 and in Ryder Cup play. But on the other hand, you still have some English golfers that aren't necessarily going to inspire fear, like 
Brian Waits and Paul Way and Gordon Brand. You've also got Ken Brown in the mix, the guy who behaved so badly in 79 and who Jacqueline probably doesn't like too much, though he does send him out four times out of five sessions, so he can't dislike him that much. And Brown did go a respectable two and two. But if you're looking for a moment where you can say of the European team, the cavalry is here, I don't know that 83 is it. I think maybe it's 85 or even 87. But this is more like a transitional moment. Don't get me wrong, they are improved. You know, even just having Seve and Langer is a huge deal. And yet it's interesting because we know, looking back, you know, with hindsight, that on that team, Tony Jacklin had five major winners. But only one of them, Seve, had actually won by 83. So even the best guys were unseasoned, hadn't quite put that exclamation mark on their careers quite yet. So you look at the rosters, both at the time and with hindsight, you look at both teams, and it looks like an incredibly hard Ryder Cup to predict. America is at home and has, of course, that long history of winning, so they're slightly favored, of course. But already you can start to see that European mind for strategy, the one we're so familiar with today, starting to creep in for the first time. We talked about how Jacqueline's main role is making his players feel like a million bucks, getting them the best of everything. You know, he even got his wife in on it to make the spouses feel part of the process. But that doesn't mean he's neglecting nuts and bolts tactics completely. On the contrary, he's got a lot of ideas about pairings, and a lot of those ideas are psychological in nature. And he's only going to use guys who are playing well. That's a new innovation. In fact, he tells one of his players, Gordon Brand, that he's not even going to play until singles. And by the way, that idea at this point, at least temporarily, has been pretty much discredited as an effective strategy, thanks in part to Mark James, who we mentioned before. He tried the same thing as captain at Brookline, and he built up a lead to his credit, but then he watched everyone he benched to that point get annihilated on that brutal Sunday. And Brand, too, is going to end up losing in singles after sitting the whole weekend. But Jacqueline doesn't know that at the time, and the point is that it shows he's thinking outside the box. He's willing to try new things, and he's willing to fail if it comes to it. Nicholas, on the other hand, was committed to getting his players pretty much equal playing time. And that's sort of an interesting paradox because we said earlier that he and his guys are ready for a competitive fight, but knowing it's coming and actually doing something about it, preparing for it, well, those are two different things. And I think there's no way you can avoid that, that sort of complacency. Even if you're the Americans and you sense the winds of history changing, you know, after decades of completely obliterating your opponent, you're not going to be able to instantly flip that switch and treat it like a dogfight, even though you think it might be. The metaphor here would be to a prize fighter, a boxer who maybe, you know, destroys his opponents in the first 10 fights of his career, but in the 11th, he gets hit and he gets hit hard. You don't know how that boxer is going to respond in that moment. You can be sure that how we plan to respond doesn't really matter because this is unfamiliar ground for him. And if he's attempted to deal with the concept at all in the past, he's had to deal with it theoretically. He's never been punched. And to jump ahead, a good example of all this comes on Sunday when Nicholas and Jacqueline exchange their singles lineups where traditionally at this point in Ryder Cup history, all the good players are at the back of the lineup. You know, that's how both captains do it. And Nicholas does that, but then he sees to his chagrin that Jacqueline has gone and put Seve Ballesteros, Nick Faldo, and Bernard Langer as his top three. And he's so stunned that he actually says out loud, you can't do that, which is funny in a modern context, but he is steeped in tradition, in this idea of what the Ryder Cup is and what it should be. And that idea is inevitably colored by all the success the Americans have had and how inferior their opponents have always been. 
And being stuck in that mindset allows Jacqueline to shock him with this sort of unconventional tactic that, in fact, does not look very unconventional today. Today, you know, you always load the boat. You always put your best players forward. But so fixed was Nicholas in the mentality of, you know, decades of how the Ryder Cup should work that it never even occurred to him to think, okay, how might Jacqueline try to screw me over here, right? What tactics might he use to level the playing field? Thus, you know, he couldn't anticipate this. Kind of reminds you of hearing revolutionary war stories where the British are all lined up in an open field and prepared to do battle. And all of a sudden, the Americans jump out of ditches at them, attack them at the back of their lines, and then run away before they can figure out what's happening. And they're thinking, what is this? This is not how you fight a war. And that's kind of where Nicholas is. He respects the opponent, but he's not quite ready to fight them on their terms yet. But Jacqueline, the underdog, is compelled to be clever because they've been fighting the Americans on an open field for years and it hasn't gone well. They say necessity is the mother of invention. And from Nicholas's perspective, there is no need to invent anything. Where there's no necessity, there is no invention. And this, I think, is very forgivable in 1983. The fact that it was still happening with the U.S. almost 30 years later, you know, before they fixed it recently, uh, you know, we explored that whole thing in our first episode in 2014. That's a little ridiculous. That's a little embarrassing. But in 1983, you can't really expect much more of Nicholas. Maybe if he was a genius. And he is a genius, but his genius isn't playing the game. And maybe you can argue he's a genius in his vision about what golf and the Ryder Cup should be. But as he's going to prove a few times, he is not a genius as a captain. He's not prepared for Jacqueline. And by the way, he'll get another shot in 87, and he still won't be prepared. We saw this with Britain, and we see it again with America, that for whatever reason, it is very hard to turn the ship of state around in the Ryder Cup if you've been losing for a long time. Not just that, but it seems hard to even learn simple lessons. Maybe that has something to do with human nature. Maybe it's specific to golf, which is by its own nature, a more conservative sport where things change slowly. I don't know. But whatever the reason, inertia is very real and very, very difficult to overcome. So let's talk about Seve Ballesteros. It's funny today how in America, at least from where I'm sitting, we associate Seve with the Ryder Cup most of all. You know, on one hand, it makes sense. He was great. On another, my God, this is a five-time major champion. This is the first European to win the Masters. Other than Gary Player, he's the first non-American to win the Masters. Hell, he's probably the greatest European golfer ever. Top five at an absolute minimum. And if Tony Jacklin is the guy who sort of planted the first flag in America, the first guy to come over and make a huge impact on the PGA Tour, Seve's the evolution of that. You know, the guy who stands on Jacklin's shoulders and does even better. In his obituary in the Washington Post, there's this quote from Peter Kessler, who, whatever else about him, has an encyclopedic knowledge of golf history. Even his detractors wouldn't argue with that. And here's how he described it. Quote, he never felt like he got the love he deserved. He played with a chip on his shoulder. He just wanted to be one of the guys with the Americans, but they all thought he was coming in and taking money right out of their pockets. End quote. Sounds a lot like what we heard earlier about Tony Jacklin, doesn't it? And by the way, if you thought American golfers didn't like Jacklin playing in their country on their tour, well, guess what? Tony Jacklin has an accent, but he speaks their language, and his skin is the same color as their skin. How do you think they're going to respond to someone with darker skin who speaks a different language? And who, by the way, is hardly a deferential personality, who is, in fact, a very intimidating guy, who isn't afraid to, you know, get in your face, play psychological games, all of that stuff. 
Now, let's put this in context. I'm not saying Seve Ballesteros is Jackie Robinson, not even close. He's still European, right? So I don't even know if the word racist applies. It's not my area of expertise. And in fact, you know, if you want to do some research on it, you're going to find a heck of a lot more examples of American crowds loving him for his style and for the excitement he brought to the game than you can of any kind of racism. So let's not manufacture a narrative that wasn't really there. However, I will say that as late as 2007, an RNA rules official named Graham Brown came under fire for making a series of racist jokes about Asians and African-Americans during a dinner speech. But it's funny to note the first line in the AP story about it. Here's that line. It says, quote, a royal and ancient rules official started his dinner speech with a fantastic impersonation of Seve Ballesteros, which segued to a series of racial and ethnic jokes, end quote. So clearly Brown felt comfortable, you know, imitating Seve's Spanish accent. And the AP thought it was fine too, according to them, right? The racist stuff came later. There's another story too that Sam Torrance tells about a press conference at this 83 Ryder Cup where an American journalist keeps calling him Steve instead of Seve. And he persists in doing that even after he's been corrected. Apparently that wasn't uncommon in American galleries either. And then there's a more overt story where an announcer at a tournament, not a fan, an announcer, you know, one of the player announcers, steps out as he approaches the tee and says, let's give the little bleep a big hand. The bleeped out word being, you know, a derogatory term for Hispanic people. So what do you call that? Is it racism, xenophobia, whatever you want to call it, it is disrespectful. And again, I don't want to dwell on this, but the point is that he is an outsider. He's treated as such. And even with the love of the fans, he often feels homesick in America. And by the way, all of this is compounded in 1980 at a U.S. Open when he misses his tee time, gets DQ'd, and again later on in the 80s when he starts a feud with the PGA Tour because they're asking him to play 15 tournaments to retain his membership. He thinks that's way too much. Dean Beeman and the Tour strip him of his membership, and it became this big, long, intense feud that was never really resolved. You know, and for what it's worth, the requirements are much less strict today, but Point is, Seve never lacked for enemies. Bernard Gallagher once said, Seve needed to feel that the world was against him. He wanted to lead, to beat people. John Hopkins, the journalist and an excellent feature at Global Golf Post, had a wonderful line. He wrote, quote, You never needed to tell Ballesteros there were dragons around the corner. He knew. End quote. But the remarkable thing about Seve is that none of this changes him. To call him larger than life is just sort of a limp description that doesn't do him justice. The more you read about him, the more you see certain qualities reflected in other great athletes. He's got, for example, Michael Jordan's ability to hold grudges. And in a memoir he wrote in 2007 before he died, he is just full of complaints for everyone who ever wronged him. And he's tough. And as a professional golfer, he's a bit of a long shot from the start. We talk about the origins of Seve Ballesteros. Here is the first paragraph of a different John Hopkins feature, all about where he comes from. Quote, The house was humble, far from grand, and centered on a small holding in the village of Pedrena, near Santander on the northwest coast of Spain. Chickens pecked and clucked at the ground outside. A donkey was tethered nearby. Rabbits scurried around. In such inauspicious circumstances, Savariano Ballesteros, the youngest of five sons, one of whom died age two from a wasp's sting, was born on 9 April, 1957, end quote. So you've got someone who was raised in relatively humble conditions, especially by, you know, professional golf standards, 
the son of a farmer in a small fishing village, born with a defect that made his right shoulder hang lower, became a boxer as a kid, learned golf by hitting on the beaches of his hometown, and as an adult, slept with a 38 revolver under his pillow. He didn't have access to a real golf course until he was 12, so he and his brothers would sneak onto their local course to play after hours. And he got really good. And it's not a big surprise because his family had a terrific golfing pedigree. And in fact, his uncle, Ramon Soto, was probably the best golfer in Spain when Seve was a kid. And all his surviving brothers became golfers too. In fact, when you ask the question of what motivated Seve, what made him so ambitious, and particularly when it came to beating the Americans in the Ryder Cup, the answer might lie with this uncle, Ramon, who once finished six at the Masters. Here's what Manuel Pinheiro, a contemporary of Seve's, had to say about that. Quote, His uncle Ramon Soto was a great player. Seve wouldn't admit he learned a lot from Ramon, but I think Ramon was the first master in that part of the world. Ramon always talked about Arnold Palmer and Nicholas and that the Americans were unbeatable. It was impossible for him to beat them, even though he was a fantastic player. Seve wanted to show his uncle and his people that he could beat the Americans. He wanted to show that he could do what some people thought was impossible. End quote. By 16, he had quit school and turned pro. Two years later, still a teenager, he shocks everyone by finishing second at the Open Championship and actually led after 54 holes before Johnny Miller tracked him down on the last day. He becomes known for his creativity and his almost magical short game, and it can be a little hard to explain what that means or to understand it, even, or maybe especially for those of us who didn't grow up watching him play. Now, I want to say here, we did a whole episode about Seve Ballesteros, and I think, you know, if you're interested in this guy, you should check that out. I might repeat one or two details here. I probably already have, but uh, we're going to give you the cliff notes here, but just want to point out that that episode does exist. But the point is, for those who did grow up watching him play, there is an aura around this guy, and there are a million stories about him. Can't tell them all, but I think it's worth our time to tell one, just to give a sense of the flavor of this guy, the real belief people had that there was something perhaps almost supernatural about his talent. This story comes from the Hopkins feature, and it's told by the caddy Billy Foster. You might know him from being on the bag of Matt Fitzpatrick when he won his U.S. Open. Billy Foster finally got his major title. The guy has been around a long time. And he was on Seve's bag at a tournament in Switzerland when Seve seemed to pull off a miracle on the 18th hole from in front of a literal wall. And here's what Foster says, quote, He was perhaps 10 feet from the wall, and the wall was 10 feet high. There were fir trees above the wall, and he saw a chink of light in the trees about four feet above the wall. He had half a backswing. Four times I asked Seve to chip it out, wedge it onto the green, and make par that way. I envisaged his ball hitting the wall, rebounding into his face and killing him, and I'd have no boss and no percentage money. I pleaded with him. My last words to him were, I know you're Seve Ballesteros, but you're not fucking Paul Daniels. Chip it out, will you please? Quick side note, Paul Daniels is a magician, so that's the reference there. He continues, he refused, and I saw the dust come up from where his club hit the ground, and I didn't hear the ball hitting the wall. It went over the wall, through that gap in the trees, over four 70-foot-high pine trees about 30 yards short of the green and landed one yard off the putting surface. Then guess what happened? He only went and chipped in for a birdie, didn't he? I went down on my hands and knees to bow to him. I thought he was God. End quote. 
And these stories of his magic, of his surreal, inexplicable ability, they abound. There are more than a few people who think Seve Ballesteros played a significant part in Europe winning the 2012 Ryder Cup, about 16 months after he died. In 1979, at age 22, he wins the Open Championship. And he does it while only hitting four fairways in the final round. Which, that final round, was, to be fair, a miserable, windy, cold day. Hale Irwin, the leader, wore two sweaters for all the good it did him. Not much, he shot a 78. And the big sort of lingering story from that tournament is that Seve hits his tee shot on the 16th hole into a parking lot and still manages to make birdie. But... Here's the crazy part. A little bit more of that Seve mystique. He may have done it on purpose. Here's the Washington Post on that moment. Quote, Mr. Ballesteros led the British Open in the final round with a chance to shut the door on his closest pursuer, Nicholas, if he could make one last birdie down the stretch. Mr. Ballesteros saw his opportunity on the 16th hole. He later said that he did not want to hit the ball straight down the fairway and risk a difficult second shot through raging crosswinds. Instead... Mr. Ballesteros improvised and aimed his drive toward a parking lot where his ball came to rest alongside a white Austin with a wide open view of the green. Mr. Ballesteros birdied the hole and beat Nicholas by three shots to become, at 22, the youngest British Open winner since the late 1800s. Now, is that true? Or is it something Seve invented later to burnish his legend? Which would not be the first time he's done it. Once when he changed his swing... He told everyone that he took photos and videos of his old swing and went out with his coach and symbolically burned them in the American desert, which was nonsense. But that's Seve. He's a myth maker. And examples of this are frequent in his career. And when you know him and you know his inventiveness, his creative genius on the course, it's very believable that he hit a ball into a parking lot on purpose on the 16th hole with a chance to win a major. But it's also very believable that he hit a bad drive and made up a good story after the fact. I have to say, I kind of like not knowing because not knowing gets at the mystery of Seve Ballesteros better than having the answer. By the 83 Ryder Cup, he's got that open championship and he's got two masters, including the one played that April. Everyone knows he's a good player, a world-class player, and though the world rankings as we know them won't start until 1986, they know he's either the best player in the world or very close. But it's important to keep in mind, they don't know that he's a Ryder Cup juggernaut. And the reason they don't know it is because he's not, not yet. Remember, at this point in his career, his experience with the Ryder Cup has been an utter disaster. It started in 1979 when he gets waxed over and over, loses to Larry Nelson four times, goes one and four for that event. And you can imagine, knowing what we know about his complicated relationship with America and American golfers and his penchant for getting angry, you can imagine what that does to him. Then in 81, as we said, he doesn't play over a money dispute. So coming into 83... He's just a guy with a bad record who hasn't proved anything in this competition yet. And I think those you know, numbers from 79, that 1-4 record, are remarkable because do you know how hard it would be for even most very good players to start out 1-4 in the Ryder Cup and even ever get back to 500 for their careers? I mean, what a monumental uphill battle over the years that would be. Can't imagine anyone's done it before. I don't know that for sure, but I'd be shocked. Except for Seve. You spot him that 1-4 start, which actually becomes 1-5 in, in 1983. He loses his first match, and he finishes his career 20-12-5. How's that for turning things around, right? Jacqueline knew it was coming. 
I like this quote he gave me in our interview when he talked about the parallels between himself and Seve. He said, quote, you know, I'd done it. I'd come and won my major. I'd won at Jack's. I was the first European to win on the PGA Tour, so I was sort of a pioneer. Seve was the same. He won multiple times over here and was a leader, and he had that same outlook. You're not better than I am just because you put USA after your name. As far as any of us were concerned, they hadn't corralled ambition. End quote. Now that's a new mindset. And 1983 is the first time he's going to show exactly what he brings to the table in the Ryder Cup. And it's not just about skill and passion, though that's obviously a big part of it. The other thing you have to know about Seve Ballesteros is he's a nudge. When I say nudge, maybe there's people who don't know or use that term. It means someone who irritates you and someone who does it on purpose. You read a lot of sources that say he would do things like cough during a backswing or shuffle his feet or engage in these various forms of gamesmanship. And like everything with Seve, it's hard to know exactly how much is true and how much is myth. And it's compounded by the fact that his reputation eventually becomes so outsized that Americans almost preemptively start fights with him or they take these bad faith approaches, which they would say, you know, are justified. The ultimate example of which comes in 1991 when he and Paul Azinger butt heads over an incident. You know, I'm not going to get into the details of now. You know, we'll do 1991 later. But the upshot is that Azinger and Chip Beck illegally used two different balls, got called out for it, and then got mad at Seve for calling them out, which just shows that where he goes in the Ryder Cup, conflict follows. And it's not always his fault, but he just kind of creates this force field around himself. But the really remarkable thing about Seve is that if you take, I don't know, let's say 99% of professional golfers or 99% of athletes in any sport, and you tell them to mess with their opponents, it's probably going to mess with them too, which is why they don't do it. You know, I always think of the Patrick Reed, Rory McIlroy singles match at the Hazeltine Ryder Cup. I was lucky enough to follow that one. And for eight holes, it was one of the most remarkable displays I've ever seen in terms of pure intensity. But when it culminated with those two huge putts on the eighth hole, what happened? Well, they hugged each other at the back of the green and they laughed. And just like that, the tension of that match was diffused. It kind of evaporated because, frankly, it was too much. It was too intense. Neither of them, I think, wanted that to continue for 18 holes. And as wonderful as it was, they both knew it wouldn't be good for them to keep it going. Even two guys like that, very competitive guys, needed to hit the call it the pressure release valve. Well, Seve Ballesteros keeps that intensity. He nudges, he holds what I think you'd call animosity for his opponent in his heart, and he wins. And believe me when I tell you that nothing pisses off his opponents more than that last fact. It's one thing to practice gamesmanship. When you do that, when you make yourself the villain to the Americans and you beat them too, oh, it's infuriating. There are a million great stories to illustrate this, but my favorite, and I think maybe the most exemplary, comes from the 1987 Ryder Cup. And I know that's not what we're talking about right now, but I'm going to use it because I like it so much. And this comes from a match against Curtis Strange. And when I quote Strange here, it's from Robin McMillan's Ryder Cup oral history that we mentioned, Us Against Them. By the way, that's a book I had never heard about before I started researching all this stuff. I didn't even know who Robin McMillan was, but let me tell you, it's a terrific book. Very much worth getting if you're into this stuff. So here's Curtis Strange describing a moment from the 87 Ryder Cup against Seve. Quote, On the first hole of one match in 1987, I wanted to fucking kill him. I'm playing with Kite. We'd had our rules meeting the day before. 
Some of that's on sportsmanship and courtesy and playing within the rules. Well, to make a long story short, we discussed having a through line, which means the line of your putt past the hole. You don't want people walking around on your through line as you could be putting on it if you missed the previous putt long. On the first hole, Seve had a chip from just off the green. I had a long putt down the hill and putted it past the hole. Olathobble putted, then wanted to putt out, but I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you can't do that. You're right on my through line. Seve came charging up. That bother you, he said? That bother you? I said, yes, that does bother me. And so Seve stomped over to his chip and shipped it right into the back of the hole, then walked off the green, pumping his fist at me. And I almost had to applaud him. More power to him. God damn, I was so mad I wanted to kill him. End quote. Now, how great is that? And kudos to Curtis Strange for his honesty. And it's exactly what I mean about Seve being always ready to stir up trouble, but then somehow deliver results. And as Strange indicates there, it is enraging to the Americans. And that brings us to the actual golf, PGA National, Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Nicholas brings everyone over to his house for dinner one night. Before the cup, both teams, they get to look at all his trophies. Seve is, in particular, completely in awe. And it's funny because Jacqueline's message to his team in their first meeting in Florida is, you know, of the variety of check your egos out the door. Nobody's better than anybody else here, which is maybe a little bit of a contrast to how the Americans operate. And it's definitely a preemptive response to some of the stuff he saw in his own playing career. And then finally, Friday morning comes, and it's time to play. And in the morning session, Jacqueline has to decide who's going to play the first match. It's foursomes, alternate shot. And he goes with Bernard Gallagher and Sandy Lyle, two of his Scots, two of his veterans. Seems like a good idea, but Nicholas counters with Tom Watson and Ben Crenshaw. And because we spent so much time criticizing Watson in our Glen Eagles post, let's acknowledge now that the guy was an absolute stud when it comes to the Ryder Cup. There are three men in American history who played at least 15 matches in their Ryder Cup careers and managed to win 70% of them. One is Arnold Palmer, who never played in the European era. And the only other two are Hale Irwin and Tom Watson. Watson actually only played in four Ryder Cups, which is a little strange, but he doesn't qualify in 75 when he wins the Open Championship. They don't have captain's picks in America until 1989 when he actually was selected at age 40, so he misses 85 and 87 too. But when he has his chances, he takes them, and he finishes at 10-4-1 in his career. Really good record. Funny thing is, he hadn't been playing very well in 83 and actually told Nicholas he didn't want to play very often. Nicholas said, too bad, you're my best player, you're intimidating. Not only will you play, you're going to play every time. And he did, and he went 4-1. As you might guess from those numbers, he and Crenshaw won that first match easily, 5-4. and four. But that's okay, because up next for Europe, talk about your all-time greats, are Nick Faldo and Bernard Langer. Neither one of them have a major yet. They're playing against Craig Stadler and a guy who is one of the most feared players on the American side, Lanny Watkins. Here's how Tony Jacklin described Watkins to me. He said, Watkins was the cockiest son of a bitch you ever met in 10 lifetimes. He'd introduced himself by saying, hi, lunch. He was an arrogant bastard, but in the nicest way, end quote. And Jacqueline considers Watkins a friend. Imagine, imagine what his enemies think. You talk about Ryder Cup records. Here is a guy in Watkins who finishes his career 20-11-3. Billy Casper and Arnold Palmer have more total wins, but pound for pound, considering the era, I don't know how you don't say he's the best American Ryder Cup golfer ever. 
That's what Faldo and Langer are facing on enemy soil. And are they intimidated? Absolutely not. They win four and two. Candazares and Sam Torrance give Europe the lead in the third match. And in the last match of Friday morning, it's Sevi Ballesteros partnered with the youngest player on either team, Paul Way. Jacqueline's idea is that Sevi will be like a father figure to Way, who, you know, you may not know that name today since he didn't fulfill a lot of the promise of his early career, but who was a pretty confident, you know, ready to fight kind of personality, even at age 20, which he was here. You know, Jacqueline called him a cocky little bugger. They played Tom Kite and Calvin Pete. Way left a putt short on 17, and they lost two and one. The Americans won that one. So the overall match at the end of the first session was two and two. Now, in theory, Tony Jacklin could have been in an awkward position with Seve Ballesteros. He basically begged him to play, told him he couldn't do it without him. And by doing that, you make a sacrifice, which is that you sacrifice some of your authority, potentially. You tell someone they're essential, and guess what? You hand them a little bit of power, don't you? And this is where we get into something a little paradoxical about Seve because... He seems on paper like the kind of person who would maybe demand that influence, that power. Jack Nicholas was like that. You know, as a player, Nicholas was known as a little bit of a pain to the captains he played for because he wanted to chime in, he wanted to be listened to, felt he deserved it, but it probably didn't always make him the best team player. There's an interesting story where John Jacobs, European captain in 81, is talking to Dave Marr, the U.S. captain, Mentions how much trouble he had with Mark James and Ken Brown in 79. Remember, we talked about that. And Mars says, I only have one difficult one. And Jacob says, I know who that is. The one who knows everything about everything. And of course, they're talking about Jack Nicholas there. Seve has a similar kind of strong personality. And Jacqueline foresees this. And so out of respect for him, he does things like you know, show him the lineup card, seek out his advice. But every time, this is so fascinating to me, Seve says, no, you do it. You're a great captain. You do it. I don't need to see it. And I love that because I think it speaks to Seve's comprehensive sort of ability to see what it takes to win on a very sophisticated level. And maybe he knows intuitively that undermining the captain or even just occupying a special space among the team isn't the way to foster team spirit. And so along with everything else you have with Seve, here's something surprising, a dose of humility. And that's why as much as he is Hated by the Americans, he is beloved by his countrymen, by his teammates, by his captains. So much so that if you ask a lot of them about him today, you know, as Hopkins did in his two features, they still break down in tears. He's beloved in a way that someone like Nicholas never is. Which is partly why Jacqueline paired him with Paul Way. Because if Seve had his druthers, he would have played with his countryman, Jose Maria Canizares. And he's actually a little upset after that loss Friday morning. Now keep in mind. He's now 1-5 in five for his career in the Ryder Cup. And he's upset because he feels like he's being asked to be a parent instead of a player. And he and Jacqueline spoke together, and Seve said, I feel like his father. And Jacqueline pointed right to Seve's head and said, You are his father, Seve. You are in here. That's exactly why you're bloody well paired together. Is that a problem? Now imagine someone saying that to Nicholas. But Seve just said, No, no, it's not a problem. And guess what? They didn't lose again in three more matches. The afternoon comes, four ball. Brian Waits and Ken Brown get a win. Tom Watson strikes back for the Americans with Jay Haas by beating Faldo and Langer. And then Seve gets just his second win of his Ryder Cup career, one up with Paul Way against Raymond Floyd and Curtis Strange when he makes birdie on the par 5 18th. 
Sam Torrance and Ian Woosnam play a terrific match against Crenshaw and Pete that ends in a half. Woosnam in particular is great on the back nine, even though he describes himself literally shaking from nerves on the first tee. And when Friday comes to an end, something really remarkable has happened. For only the second time ever, Europe has a lead after the first day on American soil. One thing you can't control in a Ryder Cup is luck. As we said earlier, ask Davis Love and Medina about that. In a tight match, you need some breaks. And on Saturday morning, for the first time, there's an indication that the Europeans aren't going to be very lucky in 83. Waits and Brown go out first in four ball. They take a three-up lead, but Lanny Watkins is Lanny Watkins. He and Stadler come roaring back. They win one up when Stadler chips in from 25 feet on 18. Ballesteros and Way also lose a lead, but Seve manages to work his magic on 18, chipping to three feet from over the green to win the hole and salvage a half. Faldo and Langer win easily, which is interesting because Langer had asked to rest that session. And Jacqueline, showing an instinct for reading people, says... Exactly what Jack Nicholas said to Tom Watson, which is absolutely not. Speaking of Watson, he and Bob Gilder win 5-4 and four over Sam Torrance and Ian Woosnam. The Americans win that session, and now it's 6-6, six to six, all tied up. And keep in mind that if this thing ends 14-all, the Americans retain the cup because they won in 81. So that's like a victory, right, if they, if they end up tied, and that's what they are now. The afternoon comes, Saturday afternoon. Back to alternate shot. Faldo and Langer winning again. That's three of four for them. A brilliant showing. Good thing Jacqueline didn't sit Langer. Torrance and Canizares get smashed by Lanny Watkins and Gil Morgan. Waits and Brown get beat by Haas and Strange. And the most intriguing match of the session is Tom Watson and Bob Gilder against Seve Ballesteros and Paul Way. Remember, Watson hadn't lost yet. But together, the father Seve and the son Way are tremendous. They get out to a big lead and they hold on for a two-and-one win. So Saturday ends, and the score is 8-8. to Nicholas gives a fiery speech to his guys, tells them to show me some brass, because he really doesn't want to be the first American captain to lose in America. In the European locker room, Seve is giving shoulder massages, and both teams are aware that this is going to be on TV on Sunday. Only two hours, which seems, you know, incredible to us today, but for them, those two hours were a big deal, right? This is a... Novelty. This is something that hasn't happened before in America. And it's all lining up for a dramatic finish. And when the lineups are exchanged, we get that great moment when Jacqueline stacks his best players in the front. Nicholas is aghast, says, you know, you can't do that. And it looks like maybe, maybe Europe has an advantage. I like this quote from Fuzzy Zeller, who had a bad back about the lineup when he found out that lo and behold, you know, Nicholas is trying to hide him in the one spot, but he just drew Seve Ballesteros. And this comes from David Faraday's book. And <laughs> issue a small warning, which is that Faraday, you know, takes a lot of creative license. I think this is a real quote. Sometimes it's very hard to tell when Faraday is just making something up. But I think largely, you know, these are accurate quotes in his book. But anyway, I like it so much. I'm going to say it as though it's true. And I think it is. So here's the quote from Zeller. Quote. I told Jack to put me out first because I figured Jacqueline would put one of his cripples there too. Imagine my surprise. I started popping painkillers as soon as I learned. Thank goodness they don't give your analysis to golfers. My eyes were spinning. End quote. <laughs> Again, take that with a grain of salt. I don't know if it's true, but I, I, it made me laugh. So there you go. Now, let's say something about this match up front because if you're looking for a moment where Seve begins to lay the First bricks of the foundation that is going to become his Ryder Cup legend, 
It happens here. And it happens on the 18th hole. And that's what's going to be remembered about this match. But let's say up front that she should have won without a problem. Fuzzy Zeller ends up getting half a point, And it's a heroic half point, a critical half point, considering his condition, who he's up against, and how this thing ends. And by the way, Zeller has been a miserable match play golfer. He, you know, he finishes 1-8-1 in his career in the Ryder Cup. How on earth, injured, does he forge a draw with Seve? It's amazing, and that deserves to be said before we talk about the shot. Seve wants the big win in this match, and he thinks he's going to get it when he establishes a three-up lead with seven to play. But somehow, Zeller wins four straight holes, and suddenly Seve has to drain a 20-foot birdie on 16 just to get back to all square. He does, and they're still tied when they come to the long 18th the par 5 where Seve hooks his drive into thick rough and only pushes second shot about 20 yards into a fairway bunker that is still 250 yards from the hole. And with the lip of the bunker right in front of him, he does something completely insane, which is he takes out his three wood. And he proceeds to astound everyone by picking the ball clean and somehow, some way, hitting it all the way to the green. Some people think it's the greatest shot in Ryder Cup history, considering the context. Bernard Langer says it's the greatest shot he ever experienced. Nicholas echoed him almost exactly and said, it was the greatest shot I ever saw. And it has grown in myth because it was not on TV. Like I said, they were airing coverage that day, but they didn't cover the first match. They weren't coming on till later. Cameras were not set up. So now we can only imagine what that shot was like. But we're lucky to have a Great description from John Hopkins, the British writer that we've mentioned before, who is there and who saw the shot live. Here's what he wrote. Quote, I was lucky enough to be 20 yards behind Ballesteros when he hit that three wood from a bunker on the 18th hole at Palm Beach Gardens in his singles match against Fuzzy Zeller in the 1983 Ryder Cup. And as soon as I realized how daring a shot he was attempting, shivers ran up and down my spine. The ball came out of the bunker, barely disturbing a grain of sand, bent 30 yards in the air, and ended by the side of the green. That was unquestionably the most thrilling shot I have ever seen, and I never expect to see another like it. End quote. Zeller actually responds with a great shot of his own. Both make par, and the match ends in a half. Again, brilliant from Seve, unforgettable, and probably the real start, the true start of his Ryder Cup legend, but... A pretty great half point from Zeller, too, in a match where the Europeans needed and should have had a win. In the next two matches, Jacqueline's gambit pays off in a big way, with Nick Faldo and Bernard Langer winning narrow matches against Jay Haas and Gil Morgan. And for a moment, the Europeans have a lead on Sunday. But then the weak part of the European lineup comes up, with Gordon Brand playing his first match of the whole event, Sandy Lyles, Brian Waits, and those three get beat by Gilder, Crenshaw, and Calvin Pete, respectively. Paul Way wins again, finishes a spectacular Ryder Cup with a 2 and one win against Curtis Strange. Torrance halves against Tom Kite. And by the way, Kite makes him putt an extremely short putt on 18 for the half. Has to be less than a foot. Stadler beats Woosnam. Brown, Ken Brown, absolutely dominates Raymond Floyd. Justifies you know, how much Jacqueline had played him. And with two matches left on the course, everything is tied 13-13. to 13. And the last matches are close. The first one is Jose Maria Canizares against Lanny Watkins. And just like Seve against Zeller, Canizares is up three with seven holes to play. Pretty good lead. 
Really good lead, actually. The Watkins being Watkins, the greatest U.S. Ryder Cupper ever, arguably. He chips away at the lead, but he's still one down coming into the 18th hole. Europe wins this. They get to 14 points. And I think what happens to Ken Azarius on 18 needs to be related from his perspective, verbatim, again from McMillan's oral history. Quote, In the last match with Landy Watkins, I was three up with seven to play and was playing good golf. On the 18th hole, a par five with water on the right of the green, I was one up and hit a very good drive and a very good second shot. Nobody had come out to watch me, but suddenly everybody comes out. Win the match and we win the Ryder Cup. Seve asked me, why didn't you hit the green? I said, I have 105 yards or 110 yards left, and that pin position is in a very, very difficult place in the left corner. I have an easy pitching wedge. And then Seve said, you are one up, you go to the green, you make par. And then that hurt my confidence and changed my game. Then I hit a sand wedge a little short in the big grass. Watkins hit a very good shot and made a birdie just like that, and that evened the match. That is, for me, very, very angry. Maybe it was my fault that we did not win, because maybe I lost my concentration. I was very angry. End quote. Now, that Watkins shot in David Faraday's book, he describes Watkins' shot as follows. Quote, the rotten, black-hearted little turd then hit the shot of the week, a pitch that stopped 18 inches from the hole. End quote. And what's pretty cool about that shot, and you can find this on YouTube, is that right after he hits... Watkins, there is a flash of lightning in the sky behind him. That's Watkins, who Jacqueline remember called the cockiest son of a bitch you ever met in 10 lifetimes, just being himself. After the match, Jack Nicholas would go out and literally kiss the divot from where he'd hit the shot. The next year, they gave him a golden wheelbarrow in honor of something Nicholas apparently said after that shot, which was to the effect of, you know, this guy's balls are so big, they need to be carried around in a wheelbarrow. And that was his nickname for Watkins, Wheelbarrow, from then on. So that match ends in a half, 13 and a half to 13 and a half. And you think, you know, why did Seve say that to Canizares? Why then? Why criticize him after he already made his choice? Why shatter this guy's confidence just before he's about to hit the biggest shot of his entire tournament? It's so strange, and it's very much not in line with what we know about Seve as a teammate, you know, how good he is in competitive situations, how he kind of understands the psychology of it, not just for himself, but for everybody else. And of course, he's not around today to defend himself, so it's all a little speculative at this point. But it's a strange kind of mystery, and I'm happy to put it in there because I think those complicating details make it interesting. It doesn't quite fit with the Seve narrative, and you know, sometimes those narratives that we construct are not perfect. And it's funny to think that you know, as, as good a teammate as everybody says he was and all that, he might have had a really negative effect on Ken Azaris at the absolute most critical moment. So the final match on the course, Bernard Gallagher, who had barely played all week because he had the flu, against Tom Watson, the American hero. Gallagher fought hard, and on the 17th of par 3, he hits what Sam Torrance describes as the best shot of his life, but it's a half-club too many, and the ball runs over the green. He and Watson both made a mess of the 17th after that, but Watson made his bogey to win the hole, which left Gallagher with a three-foot bogey putt to stay one down. Keep in mind, though, that at this point, it is over. Even if Gallagher makes the putt, the best he can do is win 18 and get a half point, and that means it's a 14-14 tie. So technically, Watson's chip for par, the one that gets close and gets conceded for bogey, is the winning shot. Nevertheless, 
Gallagher misses his short bogey putt, and the match ends two and one. And the final score is 14 and a half to 13 and a half for the Americans. It's almost impossible to describe the level of disappointment the Europeans felt at that moment, having come so close to accomplishing something unbelievable, something unprecedented. And in the end, even though it felt different, even though they had bonded together in the team room, even though everything about this Ryder Cup was more comfortable, more pleasant, more inspiring than ever before, in the end, it was the same result. The Americans win. You can imagine that a sense of dark inevitability settles over them at that moment and kind of hovers as they march back to their team room. And then something amazing happens, and there are a lot of people who tell the story. Pretty much anyone who is there on Team Europe has their own version. My favorite is from Nick Faldo. Here's what he said. We were all in the team room feeling down and dejected. Half of us felt we should have won, and the other half were not sure. At that point, in marches Seve. He had his fists clenched and his teeth were bared, just like he is when he's excited. And he kept marching around the room, saying to everyone, this is a great victory, a great victory. Then he said, we must celebrate, and he turned the whole mood of the team around. That was the spark, Seve in 1983. By 1985, we knew we could do it. End quote. And here's Sam Torrance on that same moment with Seve. Quote, the Sunday night at Palm Beach, he was extraordinary. He made us all, even Langer, shout out, we will beat them. He had tears streaming down his face. It was ridiculous the amount of emotion that was shown. He said, don't cry when we lose. Cry when we win. We are going to beat them. End quote. At the start of this podcast, in the intro, there's a quote from Torrance in his wonderful Scottish brogue, that deep voice he has where he says, we all swore that Sunday night we will be coming back. We will come back. We will beat them in 85. We will beat them in 85. Make no mistake, the reason he felt that way, the reason they all felt that way, was because of Seve Ballesteros and what he said to them. Just one more example, as if we needed one, of the man's competitive genius. And Tony Jacklin has a moment where he thinks to himself, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? And he's an honest guy with himself. He's his own biggest critic, and he racks his brain, and he can't think of much. You know, they got unlucky. Maybe a few tweaks here and there would have helped. But overall, he knew he had made the right decisions in the broad scheme of things. He knew he had set the stage for a very different kind of Ryder Cup. The Americans knew it, too. Afterward, Jack Nicklaus speaks for everyone when he says, quote, we will not be the favorites when we go to the Belfry in two years. This score was no fluke, end quote. You know, it seems obvious now in hindsight, but... For the Americans to understand that there is going to be a Ryder Cup in two years where they're the underdogs, well, when's the last time that happened? The answer is very simple. It's never. That's profound. That is huge. And what Nicholas didn't know then, what he couldn't possibly have known, is that if anything, he was underselling it. Maybe it was only Seve and maybe Jacqueline who knew what had actually happened, which is that the wave of American dominance in the Ryder Cup had just crested, had just reached its high watermark with that win at PGA National. That wave was going to crash, and it was going to crash before 1985. As the U.S. team celebrated, they were unwittingly looking down the barrel of decades of European control, a period that you could argue persists to this day, or persisted till very recently at least. 
they would lose in 85. And Jack Nicholas, who so desperately wanted to avoid becoming the first U.S. captain to lose on home soil and escape that fate by the skin of his teeth in 83, would be the captain again in 87 at his own course. And this time he wouldn't escape. We've said it before, and we'll say it one last time. Tony Jacklin and Seve Ballesteros stopped history in its tracks in 1983, and pretty soon they were going to reverse it. We don't have much footage of that Sunday in Florida, but imagine if you can the Americans celebrating, and imagine if you can Nicholas kissing that Lanny Watkins divot, and how they congratulated themselves and shouted and drank as that night wore on. Do that, and with the benefit of time, you may feel a slight pang of pity for them. The Americans would win Ryder Cups again here and there, but they would never again be the best team. And I think if you could transport that U.S. team to, let's say, you know, 2021 before Whistling Straits, you know, or any of those old U.S. teams who won so effortly across the decades, and you could show them how things were going to look, you'd have a lot of golfers looking at you and saying, what the hell happened? And maybe the best way to describe what changed in 1983 is that up until that moment the story of the Ryder Cup had been one kind of story and that story was about America starting that weekend it became another kind of story and this one was about Europe almost 40 years later it still is Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you check out what is now a weekly podcast, The Ryder Cup Radicals. That's with me, Joel Beal, and Luke Curdenine. We are Ryder Cup obsessives. We chat about all the new developments every week. It's on the same Local Knowledge feed. You also need to check out Golf Digest's weekly podcast, The Loop. And we have a new podcast on golf instruction called Golf IQ. Luke Curtinine is the host of that one. It'll improve your game. All of those are available wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode, we want to note, was a re-recorded version of a podcast I did under the title Ryder Cup Run in the summer of 2021. Very few changes today, just a couple tweaks here and there. And I want to thank on that note Ivan Ross for the intro that he put together uh, that appeared this week and in the Glen Eagles episode at the start of these longer Ryder Cup podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.